All right. What's going on, guys? I am Brett Morris. I'm the host of the podcast Recovery Survey, and I'm also the host of Recovery Revolution Live. And I'm joined today by my good friend Janine, and she has a podcast called Chasing Heroin. And that's not a typo. That E is supposed to be there. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Janine. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for having me. I was just jamming out to your pre-video music. (laughs) That was fun. Yeah, I, I added that uh, the last the last live was the first time I had the music there. I think it adds a little something. It does. It does. I was on my end like. Yeah, but thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm so excited to have you on tonight. Uh, I know your story, but I'm guessing that some of the people that are watching the live stream probably don't. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, just jump in and tell us a little bit about you. Sure, absolutely. Uh, So my name's Janine, and I'm an alcoholic addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. So hopefully in a few months, I will have uh, seven years. So my story kind of starts, I used to not add this part, but I think that it's relevant. So I started adding it now. So I'm, I'm from Georgia originally. I've been in the San Diego, LA area for like 20 years, but I'm from Georgia originally. And I am from like this great great family, great background. Um, this really like picturesque kind of town that I grew up in. No like reason you would think for somebody like being a, um, a drug addict. Thank you. Recovery revolution. Thanks for having me too. I just saw the little note. I'm going to try not to look at these. I'm a little ADHD. So I'm going to try to like not to look up. Um, so there was no like reason you would think of for somebody to become a heroin addict, which is what I became later. So I went to this really like academically advanced high school and it was very academically focused and oriented, like community and school. And um, and I did really, really well academically. I got these like great SAT scores and I got an early admission to a fancy college in Washington, D.C. And my senior year of high school, my parents split up and um, I lost my mind. I lost my mind when that happened. I lost my mind and I had already gotten into that college. So I went to that college. And, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't make it work while I was there. I couldn't make it work. And I left that college briefly. I was just really sad about what had happened. And I I left that college and I went to university of Georgia briefly and I, I couldn't make it work there either because really what was happening, it wasn't really about my parents splitting up. I wasn't really like, I, it was kind of the classic example of an addict who the rule, like the, the idea of easy. Okay. Well, all right. So Brett, this is throwing me off a little that I can't see you. Is there any way for us to both be on here? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, can Can you split screen? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. Sorry. It's just like my giant face talking right at me. I'd rather be able to talk to you. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Um, okay. So went to university of Georgia, kind of couldn't make that work either and ended up deciding that it would be smarter and easier for me to drop out of college move to LA and become like an award-winning, like Oscar-winning, Emmy award-winning actress. I genuinely thought that that would be easier than like going to class. That felt like the logical decision for me at the time. And I like to share that because that was like my first indication. I didn't know it at the time, but that was kind of the first indication for me that that's like the whole, a hallmark of an addict behavior, right? Like the quick fix, easy money, the rules don't apply to me because the reality is it was not about my parents splitting up. I wasn't really like built for the grind, you know, and college was harder than high school. And I, I I didn't want to work that hard. It just wasn't really in me to work that hard. And things had always been a little bit easier for me. And I just, I, I wasn't willing to do that. So I left Athens, Georgia, moved to LA 
And I had started in Georgia. I had started doing like a little bit of Coke and drinking. A little bit of Coke and drinking, but it wasn't that bad. I was bartending. It wasn't that bad. Left Georgia, moved to the West Coast. And my Coke use over the next eight years really continued to progress. But it was like Coke bad, which is very different from heroin bad. How explicit can I be on the show? Can I be fairly explicit? Go for it. Okay, cool. Um, sometimes I don't know what language I should use. So the my Coke use over the next eight years continued to progress and get worse. And I ended up after eight years, I had to leave. I was on the verge of like losing my place and my cars were, oh, that's so cool, Derek. Congratulations. January 15th. Yay. Good date. Um, my car was blowing up. My, the head gaskets blew in my car because I wasn't getting the oil changed in my car because I was buying Coke all the time. And I had multiple cars actually die that way. And um, I ended up kind of losing everything in LA and I moved to San Diego. And in San Diego is where I learned what like drug bad really is. And, and, and I bring up those earlier years. That's important later because I looked to those years for a long time as evidence that I had managed a drug addiction at one point, right? Like I, I referenced those a lot later, but mm -hmm. so I moved down to San Diego uh, met a guy unbeknownst to me, he was strung out on heroin or he became strung out on heroin at some point while we were together. He had had a pill problem in the past and I ended up strung out on heroin also. And the next five years, which was the last five years of my using was a cycle of, so I would, I was fully strung out. I was in and out of jail county funded programs, like not rehab, not nice rehabs, but like parole funded programs, sober livings, or I was homeless for like five years. And during that five years, my use and the consequences really escalated. I ended up using needles. Um, I got arrested five times during that period. My last arrest was for strong arm robbery and they were going to give me a strike and send me to prison, a strike in the state of California and send me to prison. And things were just progressively getting worse and worse and worse. The guy had left. I was alone. I was doing bad, like all by myself. And what I would do is I would be in your sober living, but I would relapse and I would use and I would live in your sober livings and I was able to take drug tests and pass drug tests. I was prepared to take a urinalysis. So even though it was obvious that I was using, I would be able to pass a drug test. And I was living in that space for a really long time. And I would get a little bit of clean time and then I would lose it. And, and you guys, like, I could not stop using I could not stop using, I could not stop shooting heroin and I could not stop smoking meth. I couldn't like every time I went to a program, I really tried, like I would do step work. I would have a sponsor. I would read the book. I would go to meetings and I would get a pass and I would smoke meth. And then I would end up on heroin and then I would get kicked out and I would be homeless. And that cycle would start again until I finally got back into another program. And then that cycle would start again. And it was baffling to me because I didn't want to be doing it anymore. So where I ended up was in December of 2014, I was staying in a, in a sober living and it was the same uh, and it was the same situation. So I was using, but I was passing drug tests. And on New Year's Eve of 2014, my they drug tested me that morning at my sober living. And I had a friend that I had used with, and he'd actually gotten uh, he'd gotten busted and he'd gone to prison for two years. And when he got out, he was clean and he had stayed clean and sober. But he would hang out with me and like and you know try to help me kind of. And it was New Year's Eve. I was in my sober living, but I was fully strung out because also throughout this entire time I teach fitness. So I would like shoot heroin and smoke meth and like teach spin classes. And so that was, was also kind of what I was doing in the midst of all of this. I would like get jobs teaching in these really nice areas. And then of course lose them over time. But I did have this trade that I could kind of return to from time to time. 
So I'm out New Year's Eve with my friend and the owner of the Sober Living called me and she said, hey, Janine, so you left some heroin on the bathroom counter here and you can't come back. And I don't know if any of you guys can relate to this, but like when you're a dry addict, we all become like part-time like like uh, public defenders. And I was like, hey, man, that's circumstantial evidence, man. You don't know that's mine. Like eight other women live there that are in recovery. Like you don't know that's mine. And meanwhile, in the back of my mind, I'm like, did I leave heroin just like on the counter? That's crazy. I need that. How did I do that? So she's like, you know what, Janine, you're right. There are eight other women here that are in recovery, but we're pretty sure it's yours and they're all here and we're all pretty sure it's yours. So I tell you what, and I said, I was like, dude, I passed a drug test this morning for you. And she said, you're right. You did do that. And if you can bring me a blood test, I'll support you and you can move back into this sober living. And no one had ever asked me for a, for a blood test before. And of course, in the moment, I was like, fine, I'll bring you one tomorrow. You know, and I hung up the phone and I was in like a bar, at like an Applebee's with my buddy. And we got off the phone and I told him, I was like, I'm kicked out of my sober living. And so he actually got me, he got me a hotel room, we went over there and I said, give me your phone. Um, I need to, I need to Google what the logo looks like at the local hospital. I'm just going to forge this blood test. Like I can do this because I didn't even have a phone. I had a, um. I don't know if anybody ever had one of these. Obama used to give you a, there was a welfare phone when you got out of jail. It was an old flip phone so that you could have a phone number and get a job. So I had my Obama flip phone, which did not have internet on it. And I was like, give me your phone. I need to Google what this looks like. We'll go to a Kinko's and uh, I'll just like do a little math and tweak out on this form. And I'm going to, I'm going to make a, a fake blood test. I'm going on and on and on. And my buddy kind of like always supported me. You know what I mean? Like, you know how it is when you, you know, you use with somebody and you guys get clean and it's not a toxic, you know, like sometimes those friendships are legitimate. And, and I like to tell people that too, by the way, like in rehab counselors will tell you they'll that like the people that you used to use with, they'll say like, those people aren't your friends. Like, you know, they want you to die. And that's not necessarily always true. Like sometimes they were my friend, but their life choices no longer align with my goals. And it's important to separate that. But this guy was like my legitimate friend and he wasn't, he wasn't like backing me up in that moment. I'm going to turn this off so I don't see the comments, but he wasn't like backing me up in that moment. And I remember looking at him and I was like, oh, come on don't look at me like that. What am I supposed to do? She's making me forge this test. (laughs) I don't want to do this. I don't want to forge a blood test. I don't want to be an asshole. She's making me, what am I going to do? I'm going to go kick heroin on the streets because I'm homeless. If I don't go back there, what am I supposed to do? And he said, I mean, you could get clean. Mm -hmm. And obviously I'd heard stuff like that before, you know, I'd heard stuff like that before. But for some reason in that moment from him, I thought, man, I am going to great lengths, great lengths to continue destroying my life to like hold on to this, you know? And something about him saying that to me kind of like sunk in a little, but I wasn't ready to kick yet that night. Um, And the next day, so I didn't, and I did have, so I always had, and if there are heroin addicts in your audience, they might understand this or opiate addicts. I always had like a little kit kit because I was always going to kick. So I always had a little bag with like some Suboxone and some Benzos, but it always just ended up being an extra charge when I got arrested because I never actually kicked. So I always just still like had it on me. So I had a kit kit that had one Suboxone in it that a friend of mine had taken a little bite out of like the little orange eight eight uh, milligram pills. I think they're strips now, but it was one of the pills. And he had taken a bite out of a Suboxone and traded me some because I was going to kick. So I had one Suboxone. 
spent the night in that hotel. And the next day, my friend said, okay, what do you want to do? And I wasn't ready to stop. And so I called my heroin connection and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just got kicked out of my sober living. I don't have anywhere to go. And my connect said, well, I got somewhere for you to go. And I said, where? And he said, you can stay with me. You can stay in the doghouse in my backyard. And I said, great. Really? Can I stay there? And he was like, yeah, totally. You can come stay in the doghouse in my backyard. And I said, awesome. I'll be right there. And my friend dropped me, you know, drove me to this alley in this area of San Diego where you mainly go like, you know, buy drugs, brought, didn't want to drop me off, but did. And it was more of like a small little shed and he would leave the door open and there was like a dog bed on the ground with like a San Diego chargers blanket. And um, he let the dog come inside for a few days um, and let me stay in that shed. And I stayed there for three nights and he padlocked me in from the outside at night and um, not to not because I was trying to escape, but because uh, more to like protect me while I was in there. Um, he'd had somebody stay in there before and his wife was a little bit crazy and uh, tried to kill the girl with a chainsaw. Um, and so that was why he padlocked me in at night. So and then the second night he like let somebody in halfway through the night, like at like two o'clock in the morning, he unlocked it and let this guy in with me who like sat on the bed with me and. Um, after a few hours, that guy just like actually left, but it occurred to me later, you know, like how much danger I probably was in, in that moment. But so I'm in this shed. I had a compact with a light on it so that I could pick my face better at night, shooting heroin, smoking meth. There was a free crossword puzzle available, um, outside of gas stations. And I would do the San Diego reader just to try to like keep my brain firing. I'm like trying to get, keep my synapses firing somehow, you know, like doing this crossword puzzle. And the last night that I ended up being there, I, like, I just remember very clearly. So it was January, it was cold. And I remember thinking, this is my life. You know, this is my life. I am 34 years old, locked in a shed, freezing my ass off, hoping I don't get murdered with a chainsaw. Like, this is my life. I went to college. I had these great SAT scores that I was telling you about, you know, like, this is my life. I, I like, I can't believe that this happened, that this is where I got and the next day, and my life in recovery has been like a series of, of little miracles. And this is one of them. And I always like to tell people this, like once we start walking a path that's in alignment with recovery, little miracles that don't make any sense kind of start to happen. And this was one of them. And the next day I had a friend who was a Marine 20, uh, Oceanside is out here. <clears throat> There's a Marine base at Camp Pendleton. And um, a friend of mine was back from Afghanistan and he happened to be back for like six weeks at 29 Palms, which is a, another base out here. And he called me the next day. He happened to call my flip phone. And I answered. And he said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I am living in a doghouse in Oceanside. And I think I'm going to die. And I think I'm going to die. And he said, okay, if I come get you tomorrow, will you, will you come meet me? Will you come with me to my house? And I'd stolen from this guy before. There was no reason to believe that I was going to change this time. He tried to help me before. And I said, yeah, I'll be there. So there was a Burger King that I walked to at this point with only one shoe, which I discovered after I got to his house. So I met the Burger King with one shoe and I actually called my mom and said, and she came by the Burger King 
Um, and I wanted five bucks so I could buy a pack of cigarettes. And I include this part too, in case there are, you know, sometimes there are family members listening. This is important. My mom stopped by to see me and I wanted $5 and she wouldn't even give me five bucks. Mm -hmm. Um, she brought me a cliff bar and some vitamin C, (laughs) which was so annoying because I wanted five bucks for cigarettes. And even then the insanity of like how irresponsible I was followed me because I remember saying to her, I was like, come on, like, oh, he's going to have to completely take care of me and buy me cigarettes too. Like, can't you even buy me a pack of cigarettes? Like just missing the point that like I I was not capable of taking care of myself, obviously. So she left me there at the Burger King and said, good luck, honey. You know, I I hope that this is the time that works for you. So my friend came and picked me up, brought me out to 29 Palms. I brought a little dope with me, uh, lasted for about two days. And then, and then that was it. So I waited my 19 hours, took my sub. I could go 19 hours, which I learned after massive trial and error and eating subs too soon. Um, I finally learned it was about 19 hours for me, waited my 19 hours, ate my Suboxone, that lasted a day, and then that was it. And then I was just kicking with nothing out there, you know, at my friend's house. And what I did do is I drank, actually, for another 10 days. Uh, so my the last day I did heroin was January 5th, 2015, the last day I drank, but my sobriety date is January 15th because I drank for another 10 days. And um, I hadn't heard Game of Thrones was was on at the and and I had never heard of Game of Thrones. I'd never heard of Instagram, Spotify, or Game of Thrones. And these were all things that I was like learning in the first months of my recovery. I'm like, wait, a streaming service? What are you talking about? Like no. But so while we were there, he was like, Seriously, you've never heard of Game of Thrones? It's a very popular show. And he was like, Well, just trust me, binge this show while you're kicking. So I was just like bottle up, smoking cigarettes, eating Jolly Ranchers, binging Game of Thrones. He had a fireplace going all day while he would go to work. It was just like a scene. And that was the last time that I kicked heroin and, or did any, you know, drink or drug. That was January 15th, 2015. And while I was there, and this is a part that I always like to include too. While I was there, I was calling my sponsor. I already had a sponsor and I was trying to get into sober livings in the area where I live because I I had friends in recovery that were trying to get me in and owners of sober living that I was trying to talk to and negotiate with. And I bring that up because I hate the term chronic relapser. I hate the term chronic relapser, but we all know what it means when I say it. It just reminds me of like programs and jail, but I was what you would call a chronic relapser. And the chronic relapsers, it's such a, it's such a crappy feeling to be labeled a chronic relapser. And what I want to say though, to my fellow chronic relapsers out there, what was actually happening was, so while I was there, I had a sponsor to call. I knew what sober livings to go to and what we're doing every time. The first time I tried to kick and go to meetings, I didn't know what anything was. I didn't have a big book. I didn't know what the steps were. I didn't understand any of that stuff, but the more times we come in and out, they're not necessarily failures. Every time we come in, we're gaining resources and they're there when we're ready to execute. So all of those people that I had met along the way, I was like reaching out to that last time, you know? And so if you're someone that's watching and you're what they call a chronic relapse or good for you, like you probably have an AA laying around your house. You could probably call an AA book. You could probably call someone right now and be like, Hey, I'm back. Can you sponsor me? And somebody from the program would be like, I guess like this asshole's back, you know, like we, you (laughs) at least know people though, you know, and you can use that to get back in. So I came back. Um, somebody did fortunately let me live in their sober living. I'd been kicked out of it twice in the past for selling help, selling heroin out of the sober living, but he let me live there anyways. He just let me live on the couch. I didn't have any money. Um, and just to kind of see if I was going to be able to make it work this time, you know, because nobody really believed uh, that I would. So I came back and I got a job teaching. I jumped on Craigslist. I got a job teaching at a studio and it's in, uh, it's like three, three hours away by bus, but I really wanted to get back to teaching, which is what I love. Got a job teaching and that matters later. So I got this job at a studio and 
there were three main mindset shifts that I like to share if I, if I could, that were different this time. Because as I said, I'd done step work before. I had had a sponsor and I'd gone to meetings. I did all that stuff. But this time, three things happened that were like really different for me. And I, is that okay? Do we, are we good on time? Yeah. Share this? Go as long as you want. Okay, cool. So the first thing that happened was, so I was in this sober living and I have like, I don't know, three weeks. Like I was still sick from getting back. I was still dope sick. So not that long. And because I was getting sober where I had used, right, like you see people that you run into, which is the problem when you're in like county funded programs, but it's just the reality of it. Like, that's just something you're going to go through when you're at the transit center, when you're riding public transportation, like you're going to see those guys and you have to be prepared for that. And I used to use it as an excuse, like, well, somebody should pay for me to go to promises in Malibu because I can't do it here. You know, I'm seeing all these people and that like, that's not realistic. Um, and so I was at the McDonald's by my sober living and I saw a guy that I used to use with. And he said, get your ass back in here. I got a shot like, like ready for you. And I didn't want to be rude. (laughs) And I said, okay, hold on one second. Like, I'll be right back. And I left and I ran up the hill to my sober living. I was really scared. I didn't want to do it. And I sprinted up the hill to my sober living and my, my sober living manager was standing outside. And this guy and I had gone through the rounds because I, we, we fought like outwardly because he had to kick me out before, because I was like, I'd left uh, needles out before I'd been caught selling heroin, like just like the worst resident you can imagine is sober living, but he like kept believing in me. And so I was running up the hill. And like, if you've stayed in these kinds of places, you guys know, it's always like kind of a crapshoot with a sober living manager. Like if they're going to be helpful or if they're just like really going to come down on you because it's their moment to like take their power. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's always a crapshoot. And so I was running up the hill and I was like, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to try it. And maybe he's going to take this opportunity to, you know, like, I don't know, but I ran up and I told him what happened. And I was like, Hey, you know, so-and-so just offered me dope. And you know, and I just kept saying to him, it's free heroin. Like it's free heroin. I got to go back. Who just, who just turns down free heroin? Like I should go do it. And I remember he was like, what do you mean? And, and he said, that's not free. That shit isn't free. That's the worst return on an investment I've ever seen a human being make. That is not mm. free. Like, how are we having this conversation? And I said, you know what? You're right. You're right. You're right. It's not free. You're right. It's not free. Fine. So I went up to my place, my apartment. And he came up there like 10 minutes later and he was like, you know what? I'm not done with you. And I remember thinking, of course you're not like what now? And, and I said to him, I was like, Steve, you're really giving me a hard time. I was like, give me a break here. He was a crack addict. I said, if you were out somewhere and somebody offered you crack, like randomly out of nowhere, you would struggle with that. And he cut me off before I even finished. And he was like, no, 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 no. That would never happen to me. That would never happen to me because I've taken a stand in this community. I'm a person in recovery and that would never happen to me. And he said, you have been committed to a drug and criminal lifestyle for so long. You are going to have to take a stand. You are going to have to take a position. You have to pick a side. You're like the little kid who lays right on the edge of the bed and keeps falling out in the middle of the night. Not sure why. And he was like, you can't talk to those guys. You have to take a stand. You need to be all the way up against the wall when you're in bed sleeping. You cannot walk this line anymore. And he left. And I, again, it like hit me that that was true, you know? And so what that turned into for action for me was this for the first time. And I had never done this before. I deleted all my old contacts Mm -hmm. and every sponsor had always told me to do that. And I had never done it because I would say what I said to you earlier, those guys are my friends. And it's like, yeah, they're kind of your friend, but their choices no longer align with your life goals. Right. And 
and really, if I'm being honest, it wasn't because they were my friend. It was in case I relapsed and I wanted their number. Like, that's why I was keeping those, you know? So I deleted my contacts. I deleted people from Facebook and blocked them in case I changed my mind later. Um, like, did what I could to, 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 and to separate that. And then I also took a commitment at the at the sober living, there was a meeting right there that I could walk to. And I had never done that before. And I decided to really like become a person in the sober living because in rehabs, I was always the person that you could tell if you had relapsed, you know, like you could come tell me be like, Hey, I used over the weekend. And you'd be like, Oh shit, what are you going to do? Like, I can help you pass a drug test. Like I was like the person that you would conspire with. And I realized I needed to not be that person. Like I have to all the way be in recovery. The second thing was that happened, same guy yelling at me again. <laughs> and he said, you know what? Why don't you for once in your life, why don't you become someone who instead of everybody else having to take care of you, you can actually take care of somebody else for once in your life mm. at 34 years old, instead of your mother bringing you money for cigarettes. And that like embarrassed me, you know, because he was right. I was 34 and those high SAT scores <laughs> were not helping me now. And that fancy one semester of college wasn't helping me now, you know, and I wasn't somebody that could take care of anyone. And so I decided in my sober living and my sober living was primarily people on disability for SSI for like mental illness. And I had opportunities and I had advantages that they were like never going to have. And all I could see was what a drag that was on my life. But I decided in that moment to change to how can I help take care of the people in my environment, right? And so our freezer, and I don't know if you ever did the sober living tour, Brett, but your listener, anybody watching that did this, okay, luckily for you. Okay, so some of them were like, so sober living is great and it saved my life, but they're challenging to live in. And anybody that tells you otherwise is lying. So the sober living freezer had slowly started to like build up with ice over time. And it probably was donated in like 1958. This thing was like super old. So the ice was growing, growing, growing. There was just like a little tiny space where we could like stuff our stuff. And every day we get so annoyed at the stupid block of ice. And after he said that to me, and I know that this sounds silly, but it's important. After he said that to me, I decided, you know what, maybe like I'm going to be the person that takes care of this. And it didn't have an automatic defrost. Cause like I said, it was from like the fifties or the sixties. I'm not getting excited so to unplug it, boil water. It took me like five hours to just put hot water in this freezer and defrost it and water would just come gushing out. And in the block of ice, I found two things. I found a pacifier. Babies did not live here. I found a pacifier and men's tidy whitey underwear in the block of ice. Like, I don't even know how long it had been in here, but it sounds small. But in my immediate environment, I was able to do something that like finally actually like took care of other people. And then the, the last mindset shift that happened that was so key and has really actually changed my entire life was, so I had about 90 days. And I was turning 35, 35. And I was still on the couch. I had that one teaching job, no banking, no checking account, no driver's license. When I got back, I didn't even have an ID. My poor mother was like, there was no way to prove who I was. And my mom was like, well, I can go with you to social security and I'll swear an affidavit that I gave birth to you on this day in Orlando, Florida. And we can prove that you're a person, you know, cause I was there. Like, this is how, this is how little I had, you know, there was no evidence that I was even yeah, that I was like a person on this earth. I had nothing. So definitely no driver's license, no bank account. I was going to check cash places from that one gig that I had. I had a welfare bus, car, bus card, you know, bus pass. And it was my 35th birthday. And I was really depressed, obviously. <laughs> and 
you know how it is in recovery, everybody around me, and this is true to some extent, everybody was like, yeah, but you're clean, man. And that's what matters, man. You know, like, that's what everybody's telling me. And I was like, yeah, that's not really doing it for me right now, though. You know what I mean? Because like 90 days off of heroin at 35 years old, like if you could have gone back to 1998 and if, if like the ghost of Christmas future had floated into the hallway where I was walking around as a senior and stopped me and been like, hey, Janine, do you want to see where you're going to be at 35? I'd have been like, yeah, show me because I'm sure I'm going to be like famous, definitely married, definitely rich, living in a mansion somewhere. Show me, show me. If the ghost of Christmas future had been like, yeah, so none of that shit's going to happen, but you will be 90 days off of heroin and that will be the best thing that you have going for you that day. I would have been like, that's, you, this is the AP wing of the school. Like you're in the wrong spot. You you should be somewhere. <laughs> this cannot be what's, that cannot be my life. The yeah. best thing I'll have going. And, and I that just kept going through my mind, right? Like I get that I'm clean and sober and that's great, but this is not where I thought I was going to be. Come on, mm. man, let's get realistic. That's not where anybody wants to be. It's very hard to believe that when people are telling that to you. Now I was doing a meditation series at the time. And so I went outside and our sober living was one of these places where we had like indoor couches outside that had been like rained on. It smelled like mildew. And I was smoking other people's cigarette butts out of the ashtrays because I didn't have any money. And I was outside and I did this, I did this meditation and the meditation was focused on gratitude that day. And it was like a 20 minute meditation and I really did do it. And when I was done, I was overcome with overwhelming gratitude that I wasn't dope sick in that moment. And I'm not sure how many people watching were heroin addicts or fentanyl addicts or opiate addicts. But in that moment, I was overcome with gratitude that I didn't have to find a vein, get well. I didn't need 20 bucks just to like breathe, you know, because that struggle is demoral. That's, that's, it's a tired beat ass existence to have to get well every day. And I got, I was overcome with gratitude that I wasn't dope sick. And I kind of looked up over my sober living and I saw that there was like this really nice view of mountains out in front of me. And I thought, oh, that's really pretty. And then I thought right after that, my husband just came home. <laughs> and then I thought right after that, that view's always been there. Like I just couldn't see it, right? Those mountains didn't just grow. I just couldn't see them before. And then I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because I was so grateful that I wasn't dope sick, was I able to see that easier? And did my heroin addiction actually give me the ability to like be more grateful in this moment, right? Because I have been so miserable. I was never able to see things like that that were right in front of me. And from, and what I was experiencing, and I learned this later, was the concept that my entire messaging is built on, which is everybody has heard of post-traumatic stress, right? Like when men and women go off to fight overseas, they're told, okay, you're going to come back one of two ways. You are either going to come back fucked up or you're going to come back status quo. We are hoping for status quo, right? We just want to keep you from being damaged. But what is less talked about is that there is a third way back from trauma, which is post-traumatic growth. And you can come back from trauma, from trauma with exactly what I just described, which is an enhanced gratitude for things like views. Typically, you, if you weren't walking a spiritual path before, you embark on one now. You tend to have higher gratitude for your personal relationships. Like in so many ways, trauma can actually make your life better. And starting with that early moment, early on with that view, 
I started seeing that. And, and when I was able to see my addiction, not as a liability, but as a real asset, my entire life changed. And that was when I was able to start like speaking openly about this. That was when very, very slowly pieces of me, I started believing that I could have my life back because the idea that I was just going to write that off as a loss was not working for me. Right. Like, like I understand that some people use and they can kind of move past that time in their life. And it's like, it didn't happen. That wasn't going to work for me. Right. Like it, it couldn't have just been a loss. And so when I started being able to see those years as something that I could leverage actually for more success in the future, because what it also gave me was I left college because I wasn't built for the grind. And there is nothing like a grind, like that newcomer grind. 30, 60, 90 days when you're building your life back, that is when like men are made, right? Like that is when you learn who you are. That is when you get tough. That is when you get grit. And I didn't have that. And that newcomer grind gave me that. And that job that I took at 19 days, I kept taking the bus there. I was responsible. I didn't miss class and I developed relationships with clients over time. And after a few years, I actually, I, I met a man in recovery. Also, we, we met at a meeting of heroin anonymous, actually we're married. And a few years later, we bought that studio I started at and we own that studio now. And just like me, his life, he, the newcomer grind helped him develop those tools. And so that's my main, that's my main message is that I actually think that as addicts, we are leveraged for some real success here. I don't see my using as a liability. I see it as an asset. Mm. That was fantastic. And and what an ending to your story or not, not even an ending, but to where you are today of you started at this studio and now you own it. Like that's, that's, that's just like, it, it's speaking on how recovery can work in our lives. Like that is absolutely incredible. And, you know, that, I feel like that's a that little hope shot for somebody that may be on the fence or maybe new. Like, we get things back. We get to live this new way of life. Um, and like you were touching on, like, that post-traumatic growth. Like, that's that's huge. And I, I think you're the first person I've ever heard talk about that. And I love that perspective. And, and I totally agree with that, that that is a thing. Because I've experienced that, like, from my active addiction to recovery, I've gone through those things that you were talking about, like finding that spiritual path and having this new appreciation for life and like just the most simple things in life that I now see that I never saw before. Right. So I, I love that point. And that's why I bring up the, the and I, I usually circle back to this too. So I talk about the years where I was just doing Coke and drinking and it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. And so I spent years attached to this idea that like I had been partying at a normal level before, but that is not true. For one thing, I had to leave LA because of my drug use. So that's not entirely true. But more than that, and I love this is I, I love sharing this part of it if I get the opportunity. So I had a I had a boyfriend in LA and he was like up my ass about my coke use, right? Like super mad at me all the time. And we were arguing, and it's actually ironic everything that I said to him, but we were fighting, and I was like, you know what, man you are really overreacting. It's a little bit of Coke. It's not like I'm shooting heroin. Okay. I've never been arrested. I still have my job. Like this is not that big of a deal. And he just kind of stopped. And he said, you know what, Janine, you're right. None of those things have happened to you. And you're slick enough and you're smart enough that you could probably go the rest of your life with none of those things happening to you. But you're always going to be sick, like, you know, four days out of the week, you're always broke. It's always challenging with your relationships. But worst of all, You'll have to live your life knowing you're not the woman you were supposed to be. 
but you're right. You could do that. And that's what heroin took off the table for me. So not even just my, can you hold on one second? Honey, can you do that? Um, so not even just my addiction in general, but heroin in particular, I'm so grateful for because heroin took that off the table for me. Like he was right. I could have lived in the space of just drinking and doing Coke for the rest of my life, but never like fully living my life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I'm just, I'm grateful for even like the darker depths of that. I just wanted to read this, this comment from Karen. I know as they pop up, I'm, yeah, I'm like yeah. kind of reading them. This is a good one. Uh, she said, I will be marrying my best friend because of my recovery. I am overwhelmed with gratitude. Recovery has given me my life back. I got my family back and I got my son back after 16 years of not having him. I will forever be grateful because I chose a better way of living. I'm extremely proud of all of you. I love hearing success stories. Keep climbing that mountain and chasing your goals. Thank you, Carrie. Congratulations. That's beautiful. Thank you, Carrie. That's awesome. I love somebody. So somebody else, Chrissy, you identify with the whole not being dope sick thing. I wasn't sure how many, like, I don't know the, um, I don't know the demographic, you know, like the drug of choice demographic of everybody listening. I wasn't sure if it was mostly, but like the, you know, the heroin grind to not be sick daily is just like its own. What was your drug of choice, Brett? I don't even know. What did you um, do? Meth. Okay. Okay. So you get it. <laughs> Yeah, I only did heroin a handful of times. It wasn't yeah. my, it wasn't my thing. Yeah. I, I preferred yeah. uppers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, and then one of my clients is in here. She just said, you're the best instructor I've ever had. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for being in here. That's awesome. I was going to say, if anybody has any questions for either of us, put those in the comments for sure. We'll put them on the screen, do our best. Yeah, if you guys have any questions. You. I'm a total open book. I probably already answered them with my long ass talking. I talk way more than uh, if you give me 10 minutes, I share, I led an HA meeting on Saturday and it was a 15 minute share. I think I spoke for like 30 minutes. It's very hard for, especially, but it's because I love talking about recovery, right? I love it. It's like one of my favorite things to do is talk about recovery. Yeah. Do you guys have any questions? And talking about my studio, I love talking about my, my, did I have negative consequences? Um, yes, I did. Um, so I was arrested five times um, for increasingly increasingly serious charges. My last charge was for strong arm robbery. And they were going to give me a strike in California and send me to prison. Um, I was homeless for like five years. Um, and my last residence was a doghouse in my heroin connections backyard. So I definitely, definitely had consequences. When I got back, I didn't have a checking account or an ID or... Um, you know, yeah, definitely consequences, abscesses, you know, that kind of stuff. Slew of negative consequences. Yay. You know, what's really smart, Teresa, that you have 207 days and that you're in a recovery center still. That's awesome. Like that's, that's, that's so cool that you're still there. I, um, my last program sounds about right, Ian. Yep. Sounds about right for a heroin addict. <laughs> Um, all the way down to the doghouse. Um, my last program I was in for nine months. It was really long. Um, but it was great to be there. Like sometimes we really need that length of time if you can find one. Um, when I see used needles, I don't care, Laura. That's a really good question. I don't, they don't bother me. Um, it crosses my mind. Like, I'm like, oh, like, 
there's a rig. I would have used that before, but they don't really bother me that much. Um, I do, I did have, so I heard a really cool story once. If anybody is looking for a tool for a craving, like, like say that was, say that was disturbing. Um, a friend of mine who was a needle user also took his mom to a doctor's appointment and she, she was like nervous. She had to get shots like in her eye or something crazy. And, um, uh, he saw a needle, the nurse dropped the orange cap on the ground and he picked it up and handed it to the nurse and started like really, really, really bad wanting to use. And so, and he shared this at a meeting and I do this now too. He stepped outside and he pictured himself and this sounds really silly, you guys, but stay with me. Cause it bought me you know, almost seven years. He pictured himself using, like using the needle. He put it in his hands and closed his eyes. And he was just in the hallway at the doctor's office. And he thought to himself, you know, they say like, give it up to God. And he thought, I need to literally give this up to God because if I sit with this, like I'm going to use. So he thought that in his mind, closed his eyes and threw it up in the air, like with his hands and then allowed himself to get like really present in the moment. And I've actually used that exact tool. Like one time we were in Mexico, I had about three years and I went with my husband's family to Mexico on this like amazing trip to Puerto Vallarta. And as soon as we landed and started driving through the city, there's like awesome bars everywhere and like people doing shots and drinking margaritas. And I was like, oh my God, like, how am I here? I'm going to drink. I can't be in Mexico and not drink. This is crazy. And I just started like really panicking. And I used that tool where I thought of myself like drinking or doing a shot. I was in the cab. My husband stopped to buy some cigars, closed my eyes, pictured myself and thought, okay, you need to take this. Cause if I have to sit with this, like I'm going to drink on this trip and then closed my eyes and went, Shh. I added a little noise. I go Shh, when I do it. And then I got really present in the cab, like felt the seats beneath me, you know, was very aware. And so that's a tool in the moment guys. Like that is something that works for me. Um, I literally just like picture using it and throw it up. Yeah, we got a couple more questions that came okay. in. I'll, I'll, I'll go in, in order as they come in. I'll okay. The one okay. Back up. Uh, Ian said, if you had no negative consequences due to your addictions, would you still be using tell the truth, please? I probably 1000% because like the, like the Coke, when it didn't have extreme um, consequences, that's, I would still be in that space. That's why I'm so grateful for heroin because heroin took part-time use off the table for me. Um, no, I'd probably still be using. Um, I mean, I, I'd like to say though, I've actually had this conversation with my mom and my mom has told me that she doesn't think I still would be, that she believes at some point, like the inner me would have started to kind of fight a little and that I, I would have wanted to live a fuller life, but I'm not sure because I didn't stop until things got pretty bad for me personally. And I believe I'm going to guess it's Ketwana. I might Ketwana. be saying that wrong. So my apologies. I'm not the, I'm not the best at reading or spelling. Just ask Janine. I spelled her name wrong on that post yesterday. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> uh, she says 51 days after relapsing on opiates for the fifth time in six years, trying to be spiritual again is so hard. Is relapsing a part of your story? And if so, how is your spiritual fitness now? Um, yeah, I was a, what they would call a chronic relapser. Um, the most I ever got in 15 years was 94 days was the most I ever got until now. Um, and I would get into a program and I would do all the things I would have a, you know, I would have a sponsor. I would do step work. I would go to meetings. I would do all the things and I did not want to be using. And you guys, I would use again anyways. 
like I would use again anyways. It sucked. So yes, relapse was a massive part of my, and I don't know if you heard some of what I said earlier. This is what I tell people that are relapsing though. And this is what I finally understood. Every time you go into the program and you try, you're meeting more people in the program and you're learning more things and you're gaining more resources. And so actually every time you go in, it's not a failure. You're learning more and more and more when you, that are, they're available for you when you're ready to like execute on all the things that you have learned. Um, but in terms of like trying to be spiritual again, it is, is challenging. Um, you may have heard this before, but sometimes just praying for the willingness to be willing um, and I know that that's kind of a program cliche and I try to stay away from those, but I think it's one that's really, that's really valid. Just praying to be willing to be willing is a good start. Um, I also 30 days, Ketwana, if you write for 30 days, something, a way that you see God every day at the end of the day will help as a real actionable way for you to do that. So like, it could be a beautiful sunset. It could be someone taking time in a meeting journal that for 30 days. That's what helped me. And we got another question from Ian. He said, when you were in detox, did you have a spiritual awakening? If so, can you please share it? I did. And it involves a California burrito, which sounds ridiculous, but it's true. <laughs> so yeah, that's what happened. I was in detox and um, I got out of detox. So I'd like I don't know, two and a half weeks. This is not the last time that I was talking about. This is one of the millions of times that I've tried. And um, so right before I went in this time, so I got arrested for strong arm robbery with a boyfriend. They kept him in jail. They released me after three days and they had a year to indict me. They had a year to press charges, which they didn't do. But they released me after three days and I had just been convict convicted of printing bad checks. So I was homeless by myself and with this with this potential sentence on my head or, you know, this this charge with a strike attached and I was alone and I was homeless for the first time by myself. I'd been homeless with my boyfriend before, but I'd never been homeless alone. And I was like riding a bike around town, just like a tweaker in the middle of the night with my hat on, just like riding through the streets all night. And I was outside of a 7-Eleven and I was like hungry. You know, I was hungry and the slide into homelessness I, for me was like a slow decline, right? Like you get kicked out of the first place and you're like, well, I'm not really homeless because I have my car. And it was just a misunderstanding with my roommate because she kind of sucks and I'm choosing to still do this. And as soon as I get back on my feet, I'll get a place. I'm not really homeless. And then you lose the car and then you're home. And like in that moment, I realized like, oh, I'm like really homeless. I was hungry. I was hungry and I didn't have money for food. And that moment for me was really sad and really embarrassing and really scary. A few weeks later, I got into a detox, kicked heroin, got off. You know, they did a Suboxone taper. I did the Suboxone taper for five days. I was off the subs. Two and a half weeks in, my house manager took us on a store run. And on the way back from store run, which is when you go buy groceries for the house. And on the way back from store run, we went through a little um, taco shop drive through And he bought me a California burrito, which is a burrito that has French fries on it and a root beer. And... I was in the backseat of this van eating the California burrito and drinking a root beer. And this is going to sound dumb, but I had a spiritual experience eating that fucking burrito because I thought, oh my God, this is the best food I have ever eaten in my life. But it occurred to me, California burritos are always good. I'd had them before, but because I'd had that moment where I was standing outside the 7-Eleven hungry, I was able to marvel at the ordinary and enjoy something like food 
and and so the spiritual awakening for me was oh my god my addiction gave me my life had become very black and white there was no color no hope like ketwana was talking about um no hope no spirituality and when i realized that my addiction maybe gave me more of an appreciation for something as simple as food things really started to change for me when i didn't just see it as a loss so yes i had a california burrito spiritual awakening <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, tomatoes? <laughs> yeah apparently ian had a, a spiritual awakening around tomatoes so it's true though you guys when we get to that point and then we're able to just like eat food or sleep have like a good night's sleep, Ooh, sleep like for yes. you bread if meth was your drug of choice didn't you i mean you probably had a spiritual awakening through sleep once you know like the just the best night's sleep ever and you're like thank god uh, i'm not sure if i had a spiritual awakening around sleep because i I did the whole detox thing in County. Um, oh, okay. I slept, I slept a lot, but it wasn't, it wasn't good sleep. Right. Yeah. That's I, was fair. On a, I was on a really hard bunk surrounded by a lot of people that I didn't want to be surrounded by. For sure. You have to flip the pad <laughs> under to make a pillow. It's so right. right. <laughs> I don't know how they do it out there in here. You have to flip a pad under, it's like a thin mattress and you just fold the top for, so it's like slightly thicker. I think I think I traded I think I traded some food for a second blanket okay. or something. So I had like yeah, yeah, yeah. a blanket as a pillow and then just like had a blanket over me and just like pulled it over my head and tried to shut out everything. Nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare. Yeah. Not fun. Yeah. It is so good to be alive, Ian. I agree. So Ketwana, did you hear my answer? Did that does that make sense? I think she said, yeah, my prayers daily. Uh, yeah, she answered that a little, a few minutes ago. Spirituality will find you again, too. Two and a half years clean. Congratulations. Oh, hmm. here we go. Um, any lingering triggers? No, actually. No. Um, no. Although, you know what I've yet to see that might bug me? So Coke was actually my real, like, love of my life drug. I haven't done it for a long time because Coke in San Diego sucks, but I did it for like 10 years in LA or eight years in LA. I haven't seen someone like do a line in front of me. I've been around people drinking. Um, I've never been around anybody doing hard drugs. Uh, like I've never been around somebody like smoking meth or something like that. But like though, so if I saw someone doing Coke, that's the one thing in the back of my mind. I'm like, I wonder if that would bother me, but I do know that I wouldn't do it. I would just leave. I would leave the place immediately. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it, but it would probably bother me, but it doesn't bother me when I see people like do it in movies or anything like that. Uh, you know what bugged me? Did you watch the Motley Crue movie on Netflix? I, I had to turn that off so. because they showed, and I've never had to turn anything off ever. They showed Nikki six in a closet by himself for like weeks on end shooting up heroin into his neck. And it was really mm. explicit. And I used to do that. Mm. And his experience, if anybody wants to know what my experience was like, go watch that Motley Crue movie. Um, not a documentary. It was like a um, uh, on Netflix. You know him? Really? No. Um, <laughs> um, but I had to turn that off. But it wasn't making me want to do it. It was just making me, I don't know. It's hard to even put into words how I was feeling, but I wasn't like, Oh, I want to go use. It was like, I can't watch this. It's very, very real for me right now. And I don't want to watch the same thing with four good days. I don't know if you saw that with the girl and her mom, the first 
six minutes of that movie, I was just sobbing and I had to turn it off. It was exactly my mom and I story. My mom is a huge part of all of this. Um, yeah, Laura in the neck. And now I teach your spin classes. <laughs> One of my spin <laughs> clients is in here. Yeah, dude, in the neck is all I can do. Um, but yeah, and then four good days I turned off. But again, it wasn't necessarily because it was a trigger. It was because it was so sad. I just couldn't really handle it, you know. The Ludes, oh, the, that triggered you in Wolf of Wall Street? I never did Ludes. They were gone by the time I was around. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm too young for that. <laughs> right? Yeah, they weren't a thing yeah. anymore. But I probably would have enjoyed them. I tried to find them in L.A., actually, but they, like, weren't around anymore. I had heard of them. Nobody was doing them anymore. I wonder if Ian really knows Nikki Six. I know. That's what I was wondering, too. That's why I went, no, you don't. That's why I said that. Uh, but I believe you. You could. Drug addicts know crazy people. I ran into weird people in L.A. And it wasn't even, like, where I was using the most, you know? Yes, sir. <laughs> I believe him. I believe him, actually. I don't know why. I just do. I, I, yeah, I believe him, too. I, there was a guy that was coming to my home group for a while. I mean, I'm in Texas. Um but he, he had moved from L.A. and he's been in the program, I don't know, like 40 some odd years. And like he knows all kinds of famous people and it's like, you know, went to meetings with him and stuff. And, he you know, we'd just be like at dinner or something. He just like casually tell a story about somebody yeah. and you're like, you know, that guy. It's like, oh, yeah, we went to meetings together all the time. He's cool. Like, yeah. what? Like, that's crazy. Ooh, this is a good question, Larry. I do work 12 step program. Yes. Thank you for asking that. Um, I always try to make sure, so I also have a podcast and I always try to make sure that because recovery has changed and there are a lot of like paths to recovery now, right? There's harm reduction, there's smart recovery, there's all kinds of stuff. And I really believe that whatever works for somebody works and that that's what's important. But for me, the only thing that worked was abstinence and a 12 step program. I started in NA and then it really uh, developed for me in HA, which is a smaller fellowship, Heroin Anonymous. I think they've got some in Texas. I'm not sure, but it's decently mm -hmm. big in San Diego. But yes, um, I work a 12-step program. Step yeah. two is what I was actually telling her about to write down for 30 days away that you see God. Step two really changed my the course of my recovery. Yeah, I think it would be good for the audience as well to to know that that's not a typo. Maybe you can kind of explain the name of the okay. podcast. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I know it's, it's funny to me how many people are just think maybe like I'm spelling it wrong. Um, so my chasing heroin podcast, which is listed right here. Um, it's on Spotify, Apple, like all the places. Um, you can also listen to it right from my social media. I'll just plug all my stuff real quick. Do it. <laughs> um, like on Instagram and TikTok, you can just listen right from my bio. You don't need any particular uh, audio platform. But the reason I called it that is in chasing heroin, right. To the ends of the earth. I ended up discovering like the best part of me. Like I was saying, like that gratitude on the balcony or, you know, becoming somebody that could like take the bus. Like my addiction made me a much stronger, more resilient person. And it also made me somebody that was willing to like do something like this, right? Like sit on Facebook. My, I set my husband upstairs. He's eating a quesadilla by himself upstairs. And I'm down here doing this, trying to help other people. And like, you know, the, the girl that I was in high school and I really felt like I had lost her, that girl with great SAT scores, like, I don't think that girl was necessarily going to help anybody, you know, and, and wasn't even really that happy. And so in chasing heroin, I found my inner heroine, 
which is why that's the name of the show. Thank you for letting me say that. I should take the opportunity to say that when I'm, when I'm talking to people. Uh, and I think it's a great, it's a great explanation. And I think it is good to let people know that it's not a typo, which, it's wouldn't, not a be, typo. which wouldn't be real hard uh, since I'm the one that's typing that up there. It, it, <laughs> it's not a, a big stretch for it to be a typo. <laughs> um, Ian asked if I have any regrets. Any regrets. So I don't know if you mean with um, using in particular. So I do. I picked my skin and face really bad. And I wish I had not done that. Um, I wish I had not done that, which I, I would love to get to a point in my life where I have none and I'm okay with my scars because people will be like, cause you can't see them. I have makeup on, but I have like this really big scar in particular that I got in jail and I hate it. I really hate it. It makes me really sad. I'm super self-conscious about it to this day. I won't go swimming with people. You'll never see me without makeup on. I don't even like my husband to see me without makeup on, you know, and, and that's part of my journey. That's, I guess, maybe left for me. I, I, I hope one day I can get to a place where it doesn't bother me because people will be like, oh, scars mean you survived. And I'm like, no, nah, it's on my face. And I don't feel that way. You know, I'm really embarrassed. So that is a regret of mine. I wish I had not picked myself so much. I've got scars all over my chest and on my neck. So that's mm -hmm. a regret. But it's all part of, in general, I wouldn't take back the addiction, right? Regardless. But I do wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had stopped. I can relate to that. Like, my, I, I have some, some dental issues. Um, like you can't see it normally, yeah. but like if I did like a really big smile, like up, up towards the top of my teeth, like there's some stuff that I need to get fixed. And I, I too, I get like really self-conscious. I'm like, yeah. I can't smile too big. Cause I don't want anybody right. to know like my teeth are jacked up, but like right. if I just smile normal, like nobody can tell. So I'm like, I'm good. Right. Right. Yeah. That, I struggle with that. The, the cosmetic effects. I did have a big mm -hmm. abscess scar on my stomach, but I covered that with a tattoo. Um, so that's fine. Um, but I was really self-conscious about that too. Cause you could see it. It's still there. It's slightly raised. Laura, that's why I've got the tattoo in that weird place. My, my client that's in here has seen it before. Here, here's another question that looks like that's a, a, good one. a good one. Uh, have you ever dealt with illness during recovery? Having to take opiate opioids or opiates, sorry, opiates. or elements is scaring me. Um, I have actually multiple. So twice in recovery, um, right at about two years, I had to have, and I don't know if this is because of my, oh, you didn't know that, Laura? Yeah, that's why that tattoo is in that weird spot. It's covering an abscess scar. Um, so at like two years sober, I had all of these, and I don't know if this is a result of my addiction, but I had all of these weird precancerous tumors in my body at 36 years old. I had one in my boob, one in my esophagus, and actually one in my colon. And so I had to have two surgeries um, where I had to take painkillers afterwards. And I was totally fine, actually. Um, so I gave them to my mom. She lives here. And she just gave me like four at a time. And she told me, if you need one, you, you're going to drive here and take it. I'm not going to bring it to you. So you need to really better need it so that you're willing to drive for it. Um, and I did. And I was actually OK. But I was also not a pill person. Um, so I don't know if that would be more challenging if I was an actual like, you know, because I know there are people that really enjoy pills and crushing them and like that's their thing. Um, it wasn't mine, but I did have to take the opiates twice and, and, and I was OK, but I was really nervous about that, too. Um, but I was totally okay. And I'm not a believer in people in recovery. This is just my personal opinion and my sponsor's opinion. If you aren't relaxed, you're not going to heal. So I don't believe that you need to like 
gut it out through the pain and grit your teeth and just be in pain to be some hero in recovery. Your body's not going to heal that way. But what we do need to do is take responsibility for the delivery of the drugs and make sure that we don't have access to that. And if there's somebody close to you that, um, that you, that maybe should test you, right. Cause like if they're giving you a Percocet, you shouldn't be testing dirty for Oxy. Right. So like, if you think you might use, um, you could also have somebody testing you or just make sure people know in your life. I'm assuming you have a sponsor and some people in recovery, just make sure they all know and you should be okay. I like that comment from Ian. He said, big difference between suffering and living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that kind of circles back to what I was saying with like the half using without any mm -hmm. really bad consequences. I wasn't living, you know, it was just some weird half-life. And I could have hung on to that forever. You know, I'm really grateful heroin took that off the table for me, you know, because that guy was right. That boyfriend was right. I was smart enough. I probably could have ducked those types of consequences for a really long time if I hadn't eventually graduated to heroin, you know. I can I can relate to that as well. Like, I feel like if I hadn't found meth, like my life, my life was unmanageable. Like there were, you know, there were things that weren't great about it but i feel like i could have continued to use and suffer for a lot longer than i did you know because like like you were talking about like that that lifestyle of just like going to bars and getting drunk and doing coke uh -huh. and like just yeah. kind of like that party lifestyle like i probably could have kept that up for a lot longer but i found meth Me and it was like boom you know my life yep. went downhill really quick like it didn't take right. long for those negative consequences to come in and you know, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't get quite as far as you did, but I got to that point where I was like sleeping in my car and I was like, I'm not homeless. I'm, I'm sleeping in my car. Like I'm good. In my car, I'm, I'm not homeless. Yeah. This was yeah, a misunderstanding that that roommate sucked. And as soon as I get back on my feet, I'm going to find a new one. You know what I mean? Like that slide into full on homelessness for me, was like very slow, you know, yeah, and like all, all the excuses like, yeah, well, they want first and, and last month, you know, like I right, don't exactly. have that right now, but you know, I don't have that right now, time, but I will. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Another question from Ian. Just wondering what was uh, what was that rock bottom for you the moment it changed? So I didn't really have and this is what. And Katwana, you might relate to this. This is what was so embarrassing for me about being a consistent relapser. My last two years of using was just a constant rock bottom, like living in that shed wasn't even like the worst thing that happened to me for sure. Like um, I'd had way scarier times in, in using in my addiction. So th that last one wasn't even the worst. I'm not even really sure why it was the last time. Um, and that's why I also try to avoid the whole like idea of like a chronic relapser. You have a sobriety date waiting for you. You just got to claim it, you know, and you don't even know which one it is, which is why we just keep trying so you could technically say, if you step back and look at my story, that my rock bottom was living in that doghouse, I guess, because that was the last time that I used, but I'd had scarier consequences for sure. Um, before that, I'd been living in, uh, I stayed for two weeks in this apartment once that was so scary. There was like, there was a guy like kidnapped in the back, like scary shit was happening. And I was the only girl there. Um, and it was one of the most afraid I've ever, I've ever been in my entire life. And that wasn't even this time I used after that. So I didn't really have a long term, a, a long rock bottom, rock bottom. Um, I just think consistently trying, you know, 
is all that we can do. And, and one time it just might be the last, but I didn't even have a, a bad one, you know? So yeah, those of you guys that are relapsing, because I would say this to myself, I'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like I was just living where there was a hostage in the back and I'm here I am again, you know? And it's like, but eventually I stopped. There was a moment too. I was, I was actually in a rehab and I'd gotten a job teaching, but I had relapsed and I was in the sober living and I was in that space of time where I knew I wasn't sure if I would test dirty when I got back to the house. You know what I mean? It had been like two and a half days. It's like, well, it's been two and a half days, but I've been drinking a lot of water and I worked out. So I might pass a drug test. I was like right in that space and I was leaving work and it was upstairs and I was like halfway down the stairs and I just kind of like stopped for a second. And I had this gut voice tell me, you're going to die this way. Like you're going to die this way. Not you're going to overdose, but you're going to die a dope fiend. Like this is who you are. And that voice was coming from me internally, not a drug counselor, not my dad, not my mom, me. And I was so scared. But you guys, I was wrong, right? I was wrong. And that was in 2012. I didn't stop till 2015. Like, I was wrong, you know? I have lost people from treatment. Yeah, yeah. You you saw the question. Mm -hmm. I did, yeah. I have, I have. Um. Not mostly people from treatment, though. I've lost people from, um, well, no, that's not true. Both guys that I used to use with and people that I met in recovery, for sure. Um, Overdosing, for sure. My first sponsor actually overdosed. My first sponsor um, said the most important thing to me that probably anybody has almost ever said to me in my life, and she overdosed. She said to me, because I also really believed that because I was a heroin addict, I wasn't a real drug addict, that the problem was I had gotten strung out on the one drug that you have to do every day but that I wasn't really a drug addict. I was like, no, 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 no. I did Coke successfully for years. Uh, The only problem is I got strung out on this thing that you have to do every day, which I didn't know. So as soon as I get off the heroin and kick the subs, like I'm not a drug addict anymore. And I told her this and she looked at me and she was so nice about it. She said, yeah, Janine. So I hear you. That does kind of make sense. But normal people don't accidentally get strung out on heroin. And I thought, man, that is like the girls I went to high school with, they would never have accidentally gotten strung out on like my best friends that like one went on to law school. And, you know, like the people that were just like in my wedding, if they saw heroin, they would like call the cops. They wouldn't try it and get strung out. But that was one of the most important things she said to me. And she overdosed. Actually, she relapsed a few years later and overdosed. So I've definitely lost people to overdose. Absolutely. Unfortunately. How do you tell an addict that you love to stop? You can't. But I think you know that, right, Ian? It sounds like you've been around for a little while. Um, You can't. I don't think that you can. I think that you can make a choice on your end as to how much of it you want to participate in, which might be a lot, right? And, and, And that's a choice that you can make, I think. Like, if you're with an addict and you love the shit out of that person and you really believe in their ability to get better and you want to stick it out, then I think that you can stick it out. But I don't think that you can tell anybody to stop. I don't know. Nobody could tell me to stop. Right. Um, yeah, it does hurt. Of course it does. It's it's disappointing, especially if we're someone that is actually in recovery. Right. And we know that it can be done to see someone not doing it is very challenging. Um, I, I agree with that. I know that that's true. And it's so scary right now, depending on what they're doing, there's fentanyl and everything. You know, I guess. So now it's even scarier because it's like so much more of a risk, you know, because I used to tell myself I would do like, I don't know if there's any needle users in here. I would only do like uh, 
four cc's, which is not much of a drug to make sure I didn't overdose the first time. Um, cause we all have all heard that if you use the first time heroin addicts, you're more likely to re- you know, die. And like, I knew that. So I tried to be smart about it, but from what I understand with fentanyl, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and to kind of right. answer his question, like you said, I agree with you that, that it doesn't help to tell them to stop. Like I, I had to get to that point of, of wanting to stop on my own. Like I had to come to that realization of like, I don't want to live this way anymore. But I think the thing that we can do is like, be that example, like be that living example of like recovery is possible. Like, like what we're doing right now, share our story. Like here, here is what my life looked like. You know, I've been in those same kind of situations as you like sharing that story and be like, here's where, where I was, here's where I am now. Like my life isn't perfect today. I still have struggles. I still, you know, life on life's terms, like using one of those recovery cliches, but you know, it's possible and my life is better because of that decision. You know, my life is better because I don't use dope. So, you know, that, 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 that would be my, that would be my answer to that question is, you know, just be that living example of, of what recovery looks like. Totally. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that that's the best thing that you can do. Uh, With my family now, after my using, um, they, they all forgave me. Um, my mom is a huge part of my story. I mean, did you see Larry's question, Brett? That was the one I was going to answer. Oh, this one. Or yeah, just I'll, share I'll your experiences it, with your family. On the, I'll put it back on the screen for you. Um, my mom is a huge part of my journey. She lives here <clears throat> in San Diego. <clears throat> and without her, I would have died. Like she got to a point where it was where she did like the tough love thing. Like she showed up at that Burger King and didn't give me anything. Um, But as soon as I was like ready to detox and willing to detox, she would help me find places because she understood that I didn't have like the tools or the wherewithal to be like calling detoxes. Um, She didn't pay for anything um, and she wouldn't pay for any sober livings or anything like that. She did once. She did my first go round. And then after that, she told me, to be fair, she was like, I'm never doing this again. And she didn't. (laughs) Um, But we are. In her case, it actually made our relationship much better. Um, my addiction made our relationship better and stronger and kind of walking that journey together. Um, my brother and my dad live in Georgia still. So they weren't necessarily on like the ground with me. Um, but we're all fine now. Um, we're good. In fact, my brother, I was just the speaker at an HA convention in Atlanta, the world convention. And my brother came and watched me. He, it, it was really late at night and he drove and he watched me as one of the speakers. And, um, I was really glad that, that he was there because that I don't often share this story, but now that he knows I can. So I was at that place I told you about for two weeks where I was really scared. That's where I was when I found out my brother had a child and we hadn't spoken in like years. And my mom just texted someone's family, uh, someone's phone. And the guy walked in and said, I think this is for you. And it said, if my daughter is still there, can you let her know that, that, you know, 4.30 this morning, she became an aunt. And that was how I found that out. You know, my brother was really mad at me for a long time. Um, But we're all okay now. And I had these three best friends from high school that I really thought I would have lost forever. And they were all just my wedding party a few years ago when I got married. So, but I understand that that's probably not always the case. You know, I'm sure that there are people that, um, and I do still owe my mom some amends for sure that she doesn't ask about, but. I, I need to take care of, you know, um, but our, 
relationship is I think better than it was. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I think that's another gift of recovery, you know, and it might not be every, every relationship, but you know, my experience is like my, my relationship with my parents is better than it's ever been. My relationship with my sister is better than it's ever been. Like it, and, and not to say that it, uh, like I got clean and it just happened. Like it's been gradual over time. It's been proving like, I actually mean it this time. I'm not going to go back out because I too have that. And I I also hate that term of chronic relapser, but I relapsed several times. And so, you know, every time I get clean, it was like, this is it. Like I'm, I'm never going to use again. And then, you know, it's like two, two weeks later, 90 days, whatever, like relapse. Right. Um, So, so I think it also had to be for me, it was like, I had to, I almost had like prove like, this is it. Like, I mean it this time for real. Like, I'm not just saying it to get out of whatever, like I'm definitely doing it. Yeah. My brother didn't talk to me until I had a while, six months, a long time. Um, We hadn't spoken in a while. So, so that definitely, you know, um, that did take some time, but it was fair. I'd been, I'd been using and lying for a really long time, 15 years, you know, a long time. Dope credit, yes. <laughs> Bill, when dope credit runs out, it sucks. When even the connects know you're full of shit, it's time to go to detox. <laughs> That's funny. I can remember that. I, I was actually living with my dealer there for a little while towards the end before I went to jail. And I remember he wouldn't give me any more and is like, you know, like we're roommates, man. Like, come on, doesn't that mean anything? And you I know can I'm remember good like, for it. Yeah you know, I'm good for it. Yeah. And like <laughs> going across town and scoring from somebody else. Like if you're not going to help me out, like I'll, I'll find somebody else. <laughs> right. They're like, go, I don't care. You owe yeah, me money. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he's now in recovery, which is, which is incredible. The guy I was talking about that was, that got me the room and was like, what do you want to do? That was my main connect when I was mm. using, he was my main connect for like a year. And then he got, uh, there was a huge raid at his house and went to prison for a few years and is now, you know, like, yeah, he's in recovery now too. <laughs> Ian says, any thoughts on 13th stepping? <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, you know, so here's what I'll say about that. Here's what I'll say about that. My, the owner of my rehab used to always say that. So, you know how they say he'll, he'll t- he said like, okay, so people will say, um, don't get in a relationship your first year or whatever. He would say the owner of the rehab would be like, that's bullshit. That's not in the big book. I'm not going to tell you whether or not you should do that. If you were already married when you got here, like maybe you guys need to work on this. I'm not going to tell mm. you to not work on this relationship for a year, you know? Um, and he was very much, and the rehab that I went to was very much about accountability and you make your own decisions. And he actually didn't set us up with sponsors that were going to like micromanage your life too much. And I know that there's a lot of that where you'll have like, or especially in women, I don't know in men, like you'll have women, adults, you know, older women sponsors who are like, you can't do this. You can't do that. You need to do this. You need to do that. And in my sponsorship tree, that's not what we do. What I will say is this, the, one of the times that I relapsed was I had gotten into a relationship in rehab right away that I should not have been in for a variety of reasons. It was like morally wrong, ethically wrong. I just shouldn't have been seeing this person at all. And I was like super in love with them. And Christmas Eve, 
I was by myself and I relapsed due largely in part to sadness about that relationship. And it scared me and I relapsed and I lost. I was really happy to be back at this one rehab. I was like, things were going really well. I was teaching and I relapsed and it was because I was sad about that relationship. And I recognized that. So when I got back into another program, I did decide for me personally that I needed to wait because I wasn't, I didn't want that to happen again. And I understood that that was exactly what had happened. So I personally decided to wait the last time. Um, and so I was in a longer program. It was like nine months and they let us go to outside meetings. Like we met guys and I just never talked to any of them. Didn't date completely did not let myself get involved. Um, so I chose to take some time and I tell my sponsees that if they want to date people, I'm like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Cause that's not how we do it in my sponsorship tree. It's very much a program of like accountability and kind of like stepping back. But what I, I shared the story I just shared and say, but you know, are, are you going to be able to handle it if this doesn't really work out? Cause I wasn't able to, you know? Mm. Um, so that's kind of what I'll say about that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of add on to that. I think for me, like I got clean and then it was like, this is my new addiction. Like whoever, you know, like whoever the chick is, like I'm obsessed with her and like, that's right. like my all consuming thought and like always wanted to hang out. And like, that's like my new addiction. Like obviously it's, it's healthier, than the drugs but right but but it was a distraction you know it was just something to like take away the pain like take away the having to think about all the things i've done you know i'm not i'm not going to call my sponsor as much i'm not going to as many meetings like i got other things to do like for me it was a distraction and, and when i finally got clean like this last time like i didn't didn't jump into a relationship yeah. right away yeah uh, but but like you said i wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily, I don't ever tell anyone like, don't do it. Right. Me neither. Yeah. It's not my place, you know, and that's it's also not in the big book, right? It's not in the book. It's not right. in the literature. Like at some point, it's a suggestion, but like, yeah, at some point person, right. It's kind of like the Bible, you know, they're or like religion at some point, people constructed rules, right. Some of them. Um, and it's the same thing with AA, you know, like at some point people constructed rules, but that rule's not actually in, the big book you know i agree i agree do whatever you want you know it's a suggestion but it's definitely not a rule no. <laughs> it's a it, okay it's a good suggestion it's a good suggestion be honest. yeah it's probably a good idea but you know if you're smarter than i was but i had to learn for myself always i wonder if my mom's on here she registered mom are you in here i don't know if she's <laughs> here or not i was just talking about like a <laughs> She would agree that our relationship was better now. I don't think she's in here. She probably would have said something by now. She had registered for the event, though. She knows everything. Like, she listens to my podcast. You can say it, Larry. <laughs> I'm sure that that's true. I just, like I said, try not to, like, tell sponsees what to do, you know. But it didn't work for me, for sure. I did eventually. I met my husband in rehab, though, or in uh, a meeting which I always like to share because one of my biggest fears was that as a woman in recovery, I wasn't going to meet anybody. You know, I was like, how am I going to date somebody if I can't go like get a beer with you, you know? Mm. But I met this great guy in recovery that, you know, that I would never have met in any other circumstance unless we were both in recovery, you know, another gift of being in this program. Absolutely. Too many times. The 13th step, I think he's talking about. 
<laughs> I think I think you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll I'll give you another plug for your podcast because you you kind of teased that story about the the guy being held hostage in uh in the apartment and and you staying there and being the only female and I I actually listened to that episode uh yesterday. Oh, you did. I did on my drive home from work because I What'd had to go. That was really intense. Like I was listening yeah. to it. Like, what is going to happen? Like, obviously, obviously, I knew like she's not dead because she's telling the story. But I'm just like, <laughs> oh my god! Like, yeah. what did she get herself into? So if you, know you guys what I, are interested, definitely check out her podcast because it's a yeah. You know what I left one. out of that story? They were threatening to tape my hands because I was picking so much. They were going to duct tape my hands. Wow. Isn't that scary? They didn't, but they were going to. But yes, thank you for the opportunity. So hmm. my podcast is called Chasing Heroin, Heroin with an E. Uh, my social media everywhere, if you guys want to follow me. I don't actually have a show Facebook, but I have a show Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. So Chasing Heroin across all the platforms. And my podcast is Chasing Heroin also. So I sometimes I have a guest. Uh, every other week is a shorter solo cast with just me um and uh yeah i would love for you guys to check that out it's kind of a passion project of mine so and it's a great show and i love the that's one thing that i i really like to say that just to like kind of give the audience an idea of the podcast i feel like you always have like a takeaway something helpful that or like an experience it, it there's always something applicable in your show that you can take from that and, and apply to your recovery so i think that that's a great aspect of your show Thank you. I do try to do that. I try to have a little wrap up outro at the end where I, I, I consciously do that. So thank you for recognizing that. Hopefully it means it's working. We got one question here that I overlooked. Okay. Uh, have you or your husband talked about what happens if you or him relapse? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we have a marriage based in recovery, right? Um, but we wouldn't, uh, my husband and I are really close. Obviously we got married. Um, there's no threat of like, I'm going to leave you. You're going to leave me. I, I I mean, I guess in some crazy scenario where he relapses and steals everything I have and disappears and goes to prison, you know, maybe then we'll talk about like some consequences, but like, you know, I think if he relapsed and was struggling, I would see him through that. And I know if I relapsed and I was struggling, he would see me through that also. Cause he also struggled for a long time too. Um, we're both very familiar with that happening. So we're, we're in this together though, the marriage and, and recovery again, barring some crazy situation, you know, if it was going on for years, he couldn't stop. I would have to protect myself. We also co-own our business, right? So I'd have to protect our business, but barring some crazy situation, you know, we're bonded in marriage and in our recovery journeys together. So, you know, I, I'd see him through that if that happened. Well. I, I kind of have a different agreement with my wife. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Well, she's a normie, so she's not. Okay. She's not familiar with the whole. So you're to the curb if you relapse, is what you're pretty telling much. Me. Yeah. I, like, <laughs> like I I told her on our first date, like, hey, I'm in recovery because I've right. gone on a few first dates with people that weren't in recovery, and then like brought it up, and there's like, uh, like, okay, and then like. I get ghosted. So I just got in the habit of like first date. I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out. Like, Hey, I, uh, I'm in recovery. So I told her that. And then, um, you know, we dated for two years and some change and then got married. Um, and that was one of the things I told her, like when we were dating and before we got married, I was like, if you, if I stop, if I ever start using, like, you need to 
get away from me because by yeah. by the time you know that I'm using because I'm I'm really sneaky. Like yeah. by the time you know I'm using, like I'm in it. Like you need yeah. to get away. I'm gonna destroy everything. Like I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna spend every dime in our bank account. Like for sure. And either fun. he or and he or the same thing, right? So but I think fortunately for us, we're not that I, I would think we're not as sneaky. Like mm. I'd catch him pretty quick, I believe. So hopefully, but I think that what you just said, especially if I think everybody's relationship is different, but especially with someone that's not in recovery, that's fair. What you told her, you know, I've told my friends that before my employees, my girls love me, the girls that work mm. there for me. But like I have told them before, I know you think you love me. If you think I'm using, you should quit. <laughs> you know, I'll start selling the iPads. I'll sell the spin bikes. I traded a spin bike once for a 20 sack of heroin wow. and a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, a, a pack of cigarettes, $5 cash and a 20 of heroin, a spin bike, a nice one. Wow. So I'd do it again. I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks, exactly. Laura. I appreciate that. Any other questions, guys? Thank you guys for being here. This was really fun. Yeah. And like I told you before, you never know what, where this is going to go. You know, we, right. it starts off just kind of like sharing your story and then you never know what kind of questions are going to come in. And it, it's really cool to have this interaction with, with people in the recovery community and get to have these conversations and, and see the different questions and, and see people in different stages of their recovery, like yeah. hearing hearing some of those questions from people in early recovery, and then that like takes me back, like, oh, I remember what it was like when I first got clean. Like, I I remember having all these questions and like being confused, and you know, there were some things that I didn't feel comfortable asking in like a meeting or whatever. And I wish I'd had an outlet like this where I could like yeah, hop on totally. and like put what I would consider like a dumb question or whatever, like. Oh, Aww. hey, there's your husband. Hi, honey. She's watching it from upstairs. If you just heard me say that I would stick with you if you relapse, ignore it. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I love you too, honey. Thank you for listening. I didn't know That's he was awesome. on here. See, Ketwana, I met a guy and he's awesome. That was his comment right above you. Also, Ketwana, this is not just a, a shameless plug for my podcast. I really mean what I'm about to say. Um, if you, I would love for you to listen to my podcast. You might find a lot of hope there in terms of feeling like a failure, feeling like you relapse a lot and wanting to find some spirituality and some hope. Um, I would, I would love for you to listen to a few episodes of my podcast. I think you might, cause that was how I spent my time for a really long time. Um, so I, I, I would direct you there. I recommend my own podcast. Is that stupid or what? I'll, I'll second your recommendation. I, well, because I listened... talk a lot about relapsing and feeling yeah. like a failure and being a woman in recovery also and just like, ugh, you know. <laughs> it's not a dumb question. Um, I did do acting. That's why I was in L.A., but definitely you don't recognize, but not anything that, that you guys would know. But thank you. Maybe I look like an actress that you know of. Um, unless you were, unless you saw, I did a Barbie commercial um, in like 2008, I did an Eastwood insurance commercial. I was on a TV show called The Glades, but nothing um, prolific. <laughs> Believe me, I got my SAG card, but that's it. <laughs> nice. 
Nice. Yeah. And I would, I would second the recommendation for your podcast. Thank you. Uh, like I said earlier, I've been listening to it a lot. I, I had to drive like five hours yesterday for work and I binged like multiple episodes because uh, I had kind of been, oh, she just subscribed. That's awesome. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. I think you'll Very like cool. it. For sure. For sure. And like you said, another female in recovery you guys yeah. sound like you have similar stories of yeah. relapsing over and over again yeah. and, and i mean that's that's great i love to see the connections happen yeah yeah thank you katwana for subscribing all right awesome well if we don't have any more questions um i think i think it's about time to wrap it up unless you yeah, have something else eat. you'd like to share <laughs> thank you guys so much for being here i really appreciate it yeah, for sure. And I'll give a shameless plug for my podcast as well, what? since we're doing shameless plugs. <laughs> I also have a recovery podcast called Recovery Survey, and I release episodes every Wednesday, um, different different speakers, kind of like what we had here, but without the live interaction, people sharing their stories from failure to success. Uh, actually, I'm going to have Janine on an episode here in a few weeks. We We, we recorded it um what was that like two weeks ago now i'm really far behind on on editing and stuff um but yeah you can hear her full story on there i feel like most of it was on this live cast today but that's all right (laughs) (laughs) do you want me to answer that or what do you want to do yeah go for it okay um Are you still on fentanyl right now? Or are you asking about my podcast? Because my podcast talks a lot about, um, I don't have a detox episode yet. I will. Oh, you're not anymore. Excellent. Good. That's a good start. (laughs) Okay. My podcast is called Chasing Heroin, uh, heroin with an E, um, and I would love for you to check it out. Good. I'm glad you're off the fentanyl. People ask me about that all the time. I'm like, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm glad you're off of that. But yeah, Chasing Heroin is the podcast. Yeah, and I put it I put it down there on the bottom of the screen so, so they know that it's spelled with an E at the end. Yeah, exactly. So, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I know a lot of people jumped on here and we had a lot of interaction and comments yeah, and awesome. it's always good to have another, another addict share their story and, you know, just continue to, to, yeah, I feel like I say it all the time, but I love hearing these stories of, of triumph, you know, of overcoming, like that's, it's so beautiful. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you came on today and shared with, with everybody that's here. And, you know, I know that people watch it after it's off the live. So more people will continue to hear your story and, and hopefully find that inspiration and, and think, you know, just like, just like you shared, you relapsed multiple times, but here you are, like you finally got to that point of like, I'm done. And, and you found something that that worked and you shared that with us. And, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Brad. Good I'm very grateful you night. invited me. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, guys. Thank you so Bye, much. Guys.